0: Chapter Seven, Part One, Section One of A Defence of Idealism by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Seven: The New Mysticism, Part One, Section One. There are certainties and certainties. There is the blessed certainty that two and two make four there is the still more blessed certainty that if x is greater than y and y is greater than z then x is greater than z there is a certainty that the sun will rise to-morrow so far as this last certainty is based on repeated experiences of sunrises it is not a certainty at all all you can say is that what has happened a thousand million times Will happen again if there is the same reason for its happening if that is to say the cause or causes of its happening continue to work which again can only happen so long as the conditions of their working hold good causation applied to sequences is a pure hypothesis and an hypothesis that will not work and mere sequences provide no grounds for assuming causes still fenced round with conditions the certainty that the sun will rise to-morrow is a reasonable certainty it cannot be said that at the end of our metaphysical quest we have reached any such certainty as this we have not even established our contention that all metaphysical quests seek the same end pluralism gives the lie to our complacent assurance that their goal is unity still we made out that all with the one exception of pluralism are out for unity of some kind if it be only the unity of utter negation and pluralism in declaring that immediate reality is ultimate enough for it is out for ultimate reality it even pays its tribute to the absolute in regarding all its realities as absolute unity then or ultimate reality or both are the objects of the metaphysical quest and in the contest between the sticklers for the one and the sticklers for the many we found that spiritual monism has reason on its side only if it lowers its claim to something less than certainty the spiritual monist plays high and he stands to lose more if he should lose but he is still within the rigour of the game but outside these certainties outside the rigour of the game and outside the paths where reason leads so cautiously there is a region of so-called certainties which we have not yet explored it would be easy to say of these certainties that they are true for those for whom they are true but that the claimants are all agreed both about their truth and about the way by which it is to be found and but that the object of their quest is the object of the metaphysical quest ultimate reality They are so unanimous that divided as they are by centuries and continents there is less distance between a christian mystic of the thirteenth century and a buddhist mystic of the present day than there is say between mr bertrand russell and mr gilbert chesterton they are the real plungers they stake their lives upon the game and their souls upon the end of the adventure though they are many they go alone on a dubious and dangerous way to the quiet place the untravelled country the city of god the sorrowless land the region of their certainty is not a region where the laws of mathematics and the laws of nature and the laws of thought are suspended where two and two do not make four but something else and where miracles happen miracles are not by any means an essential part of the mystic's game still he can give no rational account of his procedure reason does not reject him more than he rejects reason in the wrong place in the place where his adventure happened two and two do not exist and their behaviour is irrelevant but if it comes to that there is no reason why two and two should make four they simply make it there is no reason why the mystic should perceive ultimate reality he simply perceives it extremes meet the pluralist perception of ultimate reality is immediate so is the mystics but if the mystic is right the pluralist reality is not ultimate now it cannot be denied that mysticism is suspect it has a bad history in fact it has two histories an ancient and a modern history and it would be hard to say which of them is the worse. mysticism goes back to the most primitive of primitive times it is part of our ancestral heritage of our submerged and savage past this past is the skeleton in the monist's cupboard for monism itself is involved in this ancient history that is why healthy pluralists and healthy pragmatists will have none of it they abhor the taint the monist is always suspected of some mystical parti-pri he is like a man with a history of drink in his family he cannot escape the damaging imputation yet it by no means follows because every mystic is a monist that every monist is a mystic it does not follow because the mystic gets at his ultimate reality by way of passion and vision that the monist is implicated in his orgies and hallucinations at this rate mr bertrand russell's principia mathematica should be gravely compromised by the ancient history of sacred numbers but let us say that monism is the lineal descendant of mysticism or that the two are collaterals and have the same ancestry if mysticism has had an ancient history it must have been evolved it must have become what it once was not it cannot now be what it once was all the same the stages of its evolution must be linked together by one and the same thread that thread is the same thread that we found in tracing the evolution of the psyche it is the will to live the desire to have life and to have it more abundantly as the psyche grows this desire grows with it or rather it would seem to be the very mainspring of its growth anyhow it grows it grows into a consuming passion it passes beyond physical bounds and the love of life becomes the love of god the primitive and savage form of it is the desire for fertility the desire to live and to make live primitive and savage magic the humble origin of mysticism with which it is reproached is fertility magic the earliest rites the rites de passage the rites of tribal initiation of adolescence of marriage the funeral rites of death itself have one and the same object to bring life to ensure the virility of the tribesmen the ghosts of the dead must be appeased with sacrifices that they may bring fertility to the earth for ghosts miss jane harrison is my authority were conceived first of all as underground things as germs from the grave the very earliest greek vase paintings show them as diminutive psyches or winged keres fluttering in a grave-jar the savage placates the ghosts of his forefathers first of all that he may obtain their strength their mana he drinks the blood of human sacrifices or of the sacrificial animal that he may get their life later on he divines a god in the dead hero and in the form of the sacrificial animal in partaking of the flesh and blood of the animal he gets the life of the god so far we seem to have hardly advanced a step beyond savagery but presently magic becomes mystery the initiate aspires to union with the god union first of all for the sake of fertility the lesser mysteries seem to have had frankly no other aim it is in the greater mysteries of eleusis in the sacred marriage and the sacred birth that the conception of fertility broadens and deepens and that the life-force appears as the stupendous and the divine thing it is it does not matter whether the sacred marriage was an actual physical union between priest and priestess hierophant and initiate or whether as miss jane harrison assures us it was an entirely spiritual and symbolic rite or whether again it was originally actual and physical and became spiritual and symbolic afterwards or whether it was originally spiritual and was afterwards debased miss harrison seems to me to have proved her case the sacred marriage that began there can be little doubt as a fertility rite ends in the adoration of life itself and becomes itself a rite de passage from the lesser mystery of the body to the greater mysteries of the soul and by the time the orphics have taken the thing in hand there is no doubt as to what has happened and is happening the last and greatest initiation is accomplished the dangerous passage from the physical to the spiritual life has been made no matter if the orphic mystic covered himself from head to foot with white clay like his descendant the pierrot and like his ancestor the savage white clay man of tribal rites of adolescence his whiteness is now symbolic of the new life it does not matter whether the orphic always was or was not the utterly spiritual person his whiteness proclaimed him to be the spiritual life now appears as the object of desire and ambition and desire and ambition we have seen to be always in advance of actual achievement when magic becomes mystery we are on the threshold of ultimate reality henceforth there is no doubt as to the meaning of the words new birth and union with god now it is possible to read into the orphic mysteries more of plato than they will bear but this much seems certain that before plato's time the sense of life had widened so far as to make way for platonism for neoplatonism and for christianity and the sense of life becomes more and more the sense of the unseen the love of god becomes more and more the passion for the absolute i am quite willing to give up neoplatonism to anybody who wants to go for it on the grounds that it carried the passion for godhead to drunken excess Neoplatonic mysticism is a psychological phenomenon like any other it was the phenomenon you might expect when east and west were violently flung together in the great melting-pot of alexandria what i want to point out is that at the very finest period of greek civilization philosophy was turning from the doctrines of the many from the doctrine of the flux and from the doctrine of atomism from the pragmatic humanism of the sophists to the doctrine of the one and that the distinction was then made between appearance and reality and that the passion for god and the metaphysical quest of the absolute ran together or rather the metaphysical hunt was foremost thought led and passion did its best to follow those people who will have it that monism is the offshoot of mysticism a disease of thought reverting to a savage ancestry should really read their plato all over again and aristotle on the top of him and plotinus and philo and porphyry on the top of aristotle when it may become clear to them that mysticism owes more to philosophy than philosophy could ever owe to it plato gives a point now and then to pluralistic realism but if they are going to stretch that point and insist that plato was a pluralist and that aristotle the detestable aristotle was the accursed thing all the better they will have some difficulty in bringing home a charge of mysticism against him i would also suggest that the primitive savage had no monistic prejudices the more ghosts bestowed on him their mana, the more sacrificial animals gave him their life to drink the more everything all round him increased and multiplied the better he was pleased you cannot get away from it the quest of ultimate reality is as much a necessity of thought as it is a passion of the soul and the idea of the absolute is not primitive it is a very late and highly sublimated idea because greek art has preserved for us the earliest origins of greek religion and because greek literature and greek philosophy are still alive among us at this day thank heaven we are able to trace the stages of this development and the links of these connections but if you will read those sacred books of the east which the robust the almost too emphatically robust pragmatist regards as so much Benger's food for sick souls because he has lost his mature and healthy appetite for unity if you will read the vedas and the upanishads and the commentaries of the vedanta and the buddhist suttas and the texts of taoism you will find the same development and the same connections here again thought leads and the passion for the absolute follows until thought overthrows the thinker and thought and passion and the desire of life are consumed or consummated in nirvana or in the emptiness and nothingness of the great Tao, but the old testament gives you pause the links between primitive fertility magic and mysticism between tribal initiation rites de passage sacrificial ritual and redemption between the desire for physical life and the desire for spiritual life are as apparent as you would expect them to be. But the lead of thought, the metaphysical flair is entirely wanting. The Hebrew's thirst for God was a consuming thirst. But the philoprogenitive Jew thought of God as the creator, the father. He never rose to the metaphysical conception of the absolute to the very last jehovah preserved some of the old ways of the tribal deity he was a struggling and a battling god full of mercy when he got his own way and of vengeance when he didn't in his milder moods he was very like the pragmatic god of humanism the first jew who developed a passion for the absolute was cursed by his people and driven out of their synagogues and if baruch spinoza had lived in the first century instead of the seventeenth they would have crucified him still though the god of the prophets is not and never can be the absolute he is one religion that begins in the fear of the supernatural and ends in the consuming love of it is the historic witness to the passion for unity polytheism which might be supposed to prove the contrary is a case in point ancestor worship which seems to have been at the bottom of the whole business fathers being fertile gives way to hero worship when the pantheon is inconveniently crowded the merging of the gods takes place the gods make a fine show of multiplicity when they are all gathered together in one heaven but apparently there is none of them that did not start as a more or less single tribal or local hero the most ancient of all the underground gods of fertility and life in death were so indeterminate in person and so universal in power and function as to count as one when the gods multiply by migration of local heroes their mysterious godhead diminishes with their multiplicity until ultimately they are gathered up again into one one jehovah one zeus and practically one ormuzd one mithra one shangti and where ancestor worship has persisted one mikado on any theory with a pluralistic bias it is remarkable to say the least of it that where polytheism is most rampant as in india the reaction to pantheism and to mysticism has been strongest and that in japan where ancestor-worship has persisted into civilized times the great refuge is buddhism does it not look as if the inappeasable passion was and is this longing to escape from multiplicity and from the importunity of ancestors this refusal to have the eternal spaces bewilderingly thronged the same uneasiness is at the root of the craving for the mystic union with god and it is fiercest in a religion like christianity which is based on a metaphysical and moral dualism antagonism between soul and body and separation between god and man it tries in vain to bridge the gulf with its makeshift doctrine of incarnation and atonement It would be absurd to say that christian asceticism was worse than any other but none has been more unclean and more profane in its repudiation of the earth christianity took to itself the ritual of the world it conquered but it refused the one thing in that ritual which was necessary to its own salvation the simple sacramental attitude to life in spite of its beautiful doctrine of love and mercy and pity it was instinct with the spirit's cruelty to the flesh and it is precisely this atonement manque, this failure of a spiritual religion to be spiritual enough that is at the root of half the evil and the sickness and the suffering of the modern world a religion spiritual enough to have made a genuine atonement between god and man would have conquered not europe and america only but the whole world but if such an ideal can be conceived without a metaphysic it could not be born from the ruins of paganism and of a roman empire and from the conquests of half-savage goths and visigoths it was the secret thing conceived in the soul of christ that has its dwelling in the prophetic need and in the dreams and in the heart of man but it is still waiting to be born that other profoundly unchristian christianity is important for our assumption for it is the unique source of the moral argument which is the most serious objection the pragmatic humanist has brought against the monist by a peculiar irony that argument bears hardest upon dualism's own god the absconding deity of historic and popular christianity and we have seen that there is no solution of his moral problem that does not land the humanist in monism again and by yet another irony the christian dogma of the atonement is the most powerful indictment of the absentee almighty and an implicit confession that the god of pantheism is our only refuge monism i think has shown itself to be imperishable under some form or other and to be about as much tainted with primitive savagery as say the higher mathematics what about mysticism mysticism may be no more tied to its ancient history than any other of our instincts and aptitudes but it does betray a shocking tendency to revert at least western mysticism has betrayed that tendency and its modern history is every bit as bad as its past I know that one of the most distinguished authorities on Western mysticism, Evelyn Underhill, has assured us that this is not so. That though magic and mysticism have a common traffic in the supernatural, their interests and their object are essentially different. The fundamental difference between the two is this, he says, magic wants to get, mysticism wants to give we may class broadly as magical all forms of self-seeking transcendentalism the object of the thing is always the same the deliberate exaltation of the will till it transcends its usual limitations and obtains for the self or groups of selves something which it or they did not previously possess it is an individualistic and acquisitive science this is no doubt true in a sense it is also true that the object of mysticism is to get something and that all its giving is a means to getting the mystic wants to get illumination to get peace to get deliverance to feed on life and drink life to eat his flesh and drink his blood to get spiritual sustenance the manna of the god the parallel is very close indeed but there is this prodigious difference primitive man desires to get by magic physical things that without it would come to him of their own accord in due season only he does not yet know that the mystic desires to get spiritual things and still the parallel holds so far that both are insuring against possible failure and between these two regions of desire and expectation there is a dubious borderland the region of the so-called supernatural powers Of which the mystic himself cannot say whether they are magical or spiritual the power of healing of vision of clairvoyance and clairaudience of control over matter this is the region where miracles are said to happen though neither the believer in magic nor the mystic know what is really happening it whatever it is happens in the east and west wherever magic and mysticism are known and practised the taoist the perfect man says is spirit-like great lakes might be boiling about him and he would not feel their heat the ho and the han might be frozen up and he would not feel the cold he mounts on the clouds of the air and rides on the sun and moon and rambles at ease beyond the four seas if says the buddhist sutta a bhikkhu should desire to exercise one by one each of the different mystical powers being one to become multiform being multiform to become one to become visible or to become invisible to go without being stopped to the further side of a wall or a fence or a mountain as if through air to penetrate up and down through solid ground as if through water to walk on the water without dividing it as if on solid ground to travel cross-legged through the sky like the birds on wing to touch and feel with the hand even the sun and moon mighty and powerful though they be and to reach in the body even up to the heaven of brahma to hear with clear and heavenly ear surpassing that of men sounds both human and celestial whether far or near there is nothing to prevent him he has only got to fulfil all righteousness to be devoted to that quietude of heart which springs from within and not to drive back the ecstasy of contemplation he must look through things he must be much alone Anybody with the smallest knowledge of abnormal psychology will see that this is the region of telepathy and of suggestion and autosuggestion and of psychic phenomena generally and nobody with the slightest intellectual caution will deny that it is a region of the utmost uncertainty and danger end of chapter 7 part 1 section 1 recording by expatriate in bangor maine